Wing Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode number 66, How to Build an Instrument Approach Procedure with Russ Rosleski, coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm your host, Len Costa. Joining me on the show today are my favorite group of aviation flashers, starting first with Mr. Carl Valeri. Uh, I believe you're in Florida today, are we not? Aviation flashers, Len? He's, yeah. he's flashing us from Florida. <laughs> well, that kind of goes along with what he said offline. You don't want to know what I'm wearing right now, so I was like, eh. Well, gosh, no one could see me anyway. I am actually in not, not sunny Florida, but foggy Florida. I live right on the, the coast, and we've had the sea fog that has been rolling in all day long. Everybody's been shooting instrument approaches today to get into the uh, to the local airport here at Albert Witted. And uh, that's kind of interesting because we're going to be talking a little bit about that, how to get down in this kind of weather. So uh, lots and lots of fog. Boy, I couldn't even get out of my driveway. Really? Yeah. Crazy. Amazing. Well, my car wouldn't start, but that's a different story. (laughs) So that's the real reason. (laughs) You made it sound like it was so foggy, but really your car I know, I know. I misled. (laughs) That is a little misleading, but we forgive you. That's okay. Well, welcome. Glad to have you today. Uh, Our next uh, aviation flasher from his studio out in Boston. How are we today, Mr. Rick Felty? I'm doing great. We had a nice big snowfall today, so the entire day was spent watching and then cleaning snow. It was about... I, close to 10 inches here, really? maybe nine. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Solid. So, yeah, so I'm beat, but, but, uh, but, but ready to go. This is, I'm excited for this show. That's right. We do have an interesting show today. Uh, we have a special guest here to talk about instrument approaches, which we will get to here in just the next couple of minutes. Speaking of weather, that weather, uh, I, I guess that weather that you just had, uh, Rick, in Boston has uh, caused an ice storm in Maryland, which uh, mm. downed some trees in uh, Miss Victoria's yard. And um, actually, they've been out with, without power for more than the last 24 hours. Now, I, I did put a pitch out there on Twitter for somebody to please get her a generator, but it uh, didn't happen in time. So she will be uh, she will be once again absent. Last time she was under the weather. This time the weather is over her. So, you know, one way or another, well, it'll be good to have her back on the show next time. Speaking of weather, yet again, this is uh, the weather is the devil today. Uh, Mr. Sean Moody also was uh, delayed getting home due to uh, his commute home from work and the weather. So he also... We'll be missing us today. Um, geez, we need to. I think we all need to move somewhere warmer. Let, let's uh, come well, on down. Yeah, I was gonna say let's go, <laughs> let's go bunk up at Carl's house. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, I don't have that much room. Well, no, you don't. Just the just the one bedroom with the cat that kitties. Uh, yeah, yeah, kitties. So anyway, the enough about the cats. But uh, and I'm Len Costa, joining you from what is now not so frigid Chiberia. It's a little bit warmer here. I've got enough. Snow on the ground. Uh, it's kind of funny this morning watching the uh, commuters 
um, spin their wheels. Literally, I saw three vehicles get stuck on the street today uh, trying to get out of the snow. They don't plow the streets very well here. So I was kind of, uh, in my own sick way, entertaining with my, sitting there with my cup of coffee, staring out the window this morning, watching people spin their wheels. Let's do the pre-flight. Nevertheless, this is episode number 66. And uh, to get started with an announcement, uh, Carl, I guess you you just you just text me like, I've got an announcement. So we've got, yeah, we've got a last-minute announcement to insert. So here, here's Carl. <laughs> you know, I, I just can't hold back. I have to have to make this announcement. You know, there's this thing called Sun and Fun that's going on in April. Well, right after Sun and Fun, there's another event that combines a couple of my favorite things, ice cream and airplanes. The actually the the Florida Ice Cream Festival this year is going to be held at the Sun and Fun grounds after Sun and Fun. That's going to be April twelfth and the thirteenth. And uh, as you know, some of you know, in a previous life, I used to sell food and had ice cream machines all over the place. And uh, the Florida Ice Cream Festival is a wonderful, wonderful festival, and uh, just just a, a neat thing to go check out. It's uh, as a matter of fact, they'll have Bluebell, they'll have know, Hershey's, all sorts of stuff. But check out the, actually the website because I think they did a really cool thing. Maybe we could try to get this picture. It's it's like an airplane with you know the propeller is like those. Uh, spoons for the ice cream, and it's got a little cherry on front for the nose of the propeller, and it's it's really neat how they put this all together. But it's actually going to be on Sun and Fun grounds there, and there's thousands of people that usually attend the uh, the annual Florida Ice Cream Festival first year at Sun and Fun on the grounds of Sun and Fun. So combine both your favorites, you get a get a big old uh, you know banana split, and uh, go out and check out a stairman at the same time. I mean, what could be better? Not much, not much. <laughs> <laughs> FloridaIceCreamFestival.org if you want to check it out. I mean, come on. I mean, we're on an aviation podcast. We're talking ice cream. I love this. I know. I was going to say very tasty. Thank you for that tasty <laughs> announcement. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> very delicious. Uh, well, uh, fantastic. And uh, for uh, anybody listening to us uh, new to the show, welcome. It's glad to have you today. Uh, we do have a VIP email list where we do send... Um, Send all of our con, or excuse me, all of our uh, our updates directly to your email inbox. We also send out sneak previews of the episodes before they release to the public, and sometimes some fun little things like uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was doing some real early spring cleaning and found some stickers and magnets. I uh, I sent those out to. Pr- uh, privately to our VIP member list. You can sign up stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash VIP. Go over there right now, type in your name and your email, hit submit, and you'll be automatically added to our list to receive anything and everything that comes your way. Um, a quick shout out to our fantastic sponsor, Aviation Universe, Chicago's uh, premier aviation emporium. You can visit their website, stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash aviation universe. Lots of great things happening over there. Um, they've got, uh, I, I've, when I was visiting with them about uh, so about a week and a half ago now, there's going to be a, uh, somebody wrote a song about, about, about the pilot shop. So that's going to be coming out soon. And when it does, we'll share that here with you. But uh, appreciate having them as a sponsor. Now entering cruise flight. And like we said at the beginning of the show, we do have a, uh, a special guest joining us today. A guest who's a former employee of the FAA Aero, uh, Aeronav Division and uh, designed his, his chief uh, job there was creating and designing 
instrument approach procedures. And we welcome to the show Mr. Russ Rosleski. Well, thank you very much, Len. It's good to be here. Glad to have you on the show today. So, you know, we actually had shared some of your listener mail on a previous show of ours. You had actually written in talking about your um, your love and use of the Redbird flight simulator and how you were using that with, uh, you know, with your students, uh, especially with your private students to help them putting in inadvertent or intentionally putting them into instrument conditions and, and helping them learn uh, learn their way through that. And in that conversation came to learn about your your previous life at the FAA and like we talked about, you know, creating instrument approach procedures. And it's really exciting to have you here today to learn about what really goes on behind the scenes and putting something of that magnitude together because I can only imagine all the intricacies, all the pieces that have to come together, uh, and, you know, all the considerations, terrain and everything else that, that, that you have to look at to put something together to, you know, for, for pilots to safely navigate their way from the sky to the ground in IMC conditions. But before we hear about, uh, you know, about that, we always like to get to know our guests a little bit. Um, since we already do know you are a CFI, we'll kind of back up just a few pages. Tell us, uh, you know, real briefly, what got you interested in aviation? Well, you know, it, it really happened, uh, I think, probably back in high school. <clears throat> I'd always wanted to go in the, in the military, the Air Force specifically. And uh, I had a friend in high school who invited me out to uh, join the local Civil Air Patrol. And so I, I was involved in that through high school, went on a couple of flights, gliders and that kind of thing. I... Uh, for college, I applied to and uh, it was accepted at the Air Force Academy and uh, went through their glider uh, training program where I got to solo a glider. Uh, while I was there, of course, at the Air Force Academy, I was for, very fortunate to not have any real expenses or anything like that. Uh, my grandmother had given me $1,000 for a high school graduation present. Well, so I decided I was going to go learn to fly. Well, this is back in the 90s when flying was a little cheaper, so I paid for about a third of my training right there. And... Um, so I got my private pilot's license while I was there, did um, kind of the, the usual taking friends up and that kind of thing for a while. Um, unfortunately, my senior year, they, dis- they discovered a very minor medical condition uh, that, that could not be wavered for uh, pilot qualifications. So unfortunately, I was not able to go to uh, Air Force pilot training. But, you know, I, I kept flying a little bit. Eventually, it came down to I was just... Uh, flying to keep my currency because I'd flown all my friends and family members, that kind of thing. So I kind of took a little break. In about uh, 2002, I kind of started flying again, bought an airplane in 2004. I own a Piper Warrior I keep out here uh, in Dayton. And I'm just one of those guys I keep adding ratings. You know, I, uh, I think I've only had one real flight review uh, in all those years just because I keep getting some kind of additional rating or a uh, you know, I did a flight review in a Stearman one year, you know, just that kind of stuff. So uh, just kind of added an instrument rating, a commercial rating, a multi-engine, added a helicopter rating to my commercial. And then in 2012, I decided, you know, I really enjoy this stuff a lot. Maybe I should start teaching. So I went and got my CFI and CFII licenses, and uh, I've been teaching since uh, since then. But along the way, like I said, I was in the Air Force. Uh, I got out of the Air Force for some family reasons. I did, after that, I went and worked for the FA designing the uh, approach procedures. Unfortunately, I had to leave that job also for family reasons. But um, so and that, that was about three years ago. And now I work for Department of Defense out here in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, 
and doing some uh, different things, including with UAVs for them. But uh, that's kind of a little brief, brief history of, uh, of my flying. Well, very good. And so uh, how are you enjoying being flight instructor? You know, it, it's fantastic. I, I had no idea <laughs> what I was getting into. And those of you who are flight instructors know that for sure. Uh, just the, I, I've, I've been very fortunate to have in, at the school I teach at to have had private students, uh, instrument students, you know, first solos, commercial, aircraft checkouts, BFRs, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So pretty much the whole range of it. And just seeing things click when someone gets... They finally understand how how to flare in the landing, or or they they set up the whole instrument approach without me having to mention anything and fly it perfectly. It, it's it's wonderful. I love it. You know, there's uh, you can probably attest to this, and I'm curious what your thoughts on. But you know, somebody once said to me before I started flight instructing that if you really want to learn this stuff, teach it. And when I became a CFI and a double I. Um, I think I was probably the most proficient I've ever been in my life just because teaching that material day in and day out, you become so knowledgeable, you become so intimate with it. And uh, that's when I was probably, you know, knew the most information at that time. I'm sure you can agree with that statement. Oh, no doubt. I mean, when I had my CFI check ride, I, I knew everything. And then my first student came along and I knew nothing. So <laughs> I think <laughs> I think that's probably pretty common. <laughs> That will happen. So, um, speaking of you know, speaking of instrument approaches, uh, that is kind of the chief uh, chief portion of the discussion today that we want to learn about. Uh, you know, we we've talked uh, briefly about some of the things that you've done before, and uh, what we really want to know is, I think the easiest thing maybe would be just kind of take us on um, an abbreviated version of start to finish on designing an instrument approach and then i'm sure that we'll have some questions along the way sure that's that's quite a task because it's quite a process like you mentioned <laughs> before there's uh it's it, it it's a bureaucracy and there are a ton of moving parts um it starts at the airport really you know this or the airport will request uh, an approach or you know or one will be requested for them um and and there, there are surveys that have to be conducted. Information is gathered from the airport manager. Uh, that stuff is fed up through one of the FA's regional offices. They have three, um, Seattle, Fort Worth, and Atlanta. And the, the regional offices kind of work closely with the, the airport and the air traffic control uh, organization there to to kind of determine what they're looking for, what are the general requirements. And one important thing they do is, is this approach that they want even feasible? Um, you know, is it a, an ILS from the south into Aspen, which obviously isn't going to work, you know, something like that. So, uh, so they do a, a feasibility study. And at that point, it's then handed off to uh, Aeronav Products, where I worked. And we take... We take all that information that they requested and look at the, uh, the obstacle environment. The, there's several different databases on obstacles, um, the runway layout, uh, survey types, and, and um, levels of surveys. And the procedure is usually designed starting from, from the runway out. Okay, so the first segment you would do would be your final approach segment. Okay, your your final approach fix inbound. 
that's the most critical, the one that has to meet the most critical alignment criteria and and usually has the, the most problems or, or restrictions with, with obstacles uh, on, on final. Uh, then I'd usually go ahead and, and try to build the, the missed approach after that because, again, that's, that's also an area where, especially in the, in the mountain west and the Appalachians and such, you can have some, some pretty big impacts with the missed approach. Uh, are you going to need to turn to avoid uh, to avoid a, a mountain or or something like that? So, build those, kind of run through and evaluate those uh, f- those segments first, and then you, then you work backward. You go, keep uh, going outbound from the runway. You get your uh, your uh, intermediate segment, your initial and your initial segments, any feeder routes into the procedure, holding patterns, and and that kind of thing. Uh, after the specialist designs procedure, and I can talk about more about specifically how that's done later if you like, um, the, there's a ton of documentation. It's all done electronically now, but it, it, when I was there, it was stacks of paper still. <laughs> and uh, it would go, there's a QA function, and the, the QA function looks at it, probably goes back and forth a few times, and um, then, then is signed off out of the AeroNav products. It would go over to flight inspection. They would, that's a separate branch of the, of the uh, FAA that actually flies the approaches. They would first take a look at it, if I, whether this, this makes sense. If, is it flyable? I mean, you can, it's possible to construct a procedure that meets all the rules, but is really, really hard to fly. So they would look at that and then go out and fly it. it come back, it'd go over to the charting people, and they'd, uh, they do the actual pretty picture that you see in the approach books, and then it's scheduled for publication. The whole process can take uh, six, nine, twelve months more. It 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 just all depends on how much uh, back and forth there is, where it goes in the production schedule, and, and that kind of thing. Now, so so that information that uh, you know you wanted to expound upon, let's uh, tell us a little bit more about some of those intricacies. Sure, about um, actually designing the the approach itself, there is some automation involved, fortunately. Um, one of the basic classes that they'll send you to, though, is how to do everything manually, drawing on maps, uh, the what we ref- referred to as the, the trapezoids, because in the old days they used to be trapezoids, for uh, mostly for approaching a VOR. The uh, obst- the very area you would evaluate for obstacles kind of widens as you get further from the VOR, right? Less, uh, you know, signal sensitivity and that kind of thing. So learn how to do it manually, but then uh, then there is a lot of automation involved. Um, and the automation is, is getting better as time goes on, fortunately. But you can you can specify where are you about where you want your final approach fix, and then it'll it'll draw the the uh, final approach segment, and it'll, it will evaluate it for obstacles, and the same for the other the other approach segments. However, um, like with any automation, it's not perfect, and there's a lot of a lot of hand massaging of of the data that that goes in there. Uh, some of the procedures, the automation just simply won't do. If we get into talking about departure procedures, uh, that is very much hand evaluated every every mile along the way until you get out to the uh, unroot structure so that can be a very lengthy process now why you know why why is that just because of the different airspace uh, for departures you mean right for those departure procedures why are yeah, there more hands on 
You know, it, it's it's really simply because the automation just doesn't exist yet, and that's that's something they're working on. Uh, you know, there has to be in order for to to use automation, there has to be a computer program written that will evaluate the the various sloping surfaces that go out from the runway. Uh, on a departure, uh, aircraft are assumed to climb at 200 feet per nautical mile, unless otherwise specified. Now, notice that's a, a climb gradient, feet per nautical mile, not feet per minute, like most, uh, you know, like most people think of when they're flying. So it's 200 feet per nautical mile. Below that is an uh, obstacle uh, evaluation surface that rises at 152 feet uh, per nautical mile. So every mile you go away from the runway under departure, you get a little bit more uh, clearance above the ground or, or terrain. So uh, you can picture a complex departure procedure that takes you out to, to a fix, turns left, uh, maybe goes up to some altitude and tur- turns right again. That whole way along that departure procedure currently is evaluated manually by looking at terrain contour lines and as, as well as the obstacle database, of course. But, uh, but manually looking at terrain contour lines and, uh, and making sure that the, the uh, departure surface is clear that, clear that terrain. So it's, it, it can be a lot uh, more labor-intensive, certainly. So, Russ, on these sure. procedures, where do you, how do you figure all this out? I mean, is there, what's this document called that you're following? For all the criteria for the departure and uh, the arrivals, how do you how do you go about designing this approach to fit certain guidelines? Where are those guidelines? Well, the real Bible is eighty two sixty point three B. It's an FAA order. It's available for for download on the FAA website if anybody wants to take a, a casual look at it. But uh, it it gets into all this all the formulas, um, all of the um, the methods for calculating. Clearance to an obstacle, distances. Um, how wide is this protected area that you're you're evaluating? Uh, certainly, on a NDB or a VOR, the the area is wider than on GPS. So it's it's got all those all those type of formulas, and it's a pretty uh, pretty thick document. But uh, that that's the main source there. So if someone was to come to you, like an airport authority, or say somebody with a private airport that wants to design an instrument approach, would it be good for them to go there first to try to figure out how to design the approach? Or would they just go to you or, or go to the FA and say, hey, we want this type of an approach? And you, I think you have the, yeah, the, really the, la- the last one is, is how it would work. I mean, I don't think anybody up there expects anybody who isn't up there to be an, an expert on, the, on all the formulas and such. Uh, when I moved out here, I was... I was actually fortunate to be able to help a local airport get a uh, get a new approach. So that they had found out that I did this kind of work, and the airport manager called me up one day and said, "Hey, uh, can you give us a hand?" Uh, so I got I got to see it from the other side, which was pretty interesting. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you just request initiation of an approach, and like I said, the uh, the regional office will work with the airport manager, and you know and and see what exactly you're looking for, and does it meet does it meet a, a sanity check first, and then uh, then it's handed off for the, the real in depth evaluation. But we, when I helped on that project, we got to kind of suggest, hey, we you know we'd like it to come from here, and uh, you know we'd like to keep it a straight in, not a circling approach, although it's a little bit of an angle. You know, we were able to kind of 
throw out our suggestions and they, they listen to them and, and it worked out great. You know, I wonder if someone has a private airport and they want to put an instrument approach procedure in. I wonder what the process would be there. Because I'm, I'm assuming that there's like a priority. So, for instance, say uh, JFK says they need a new approach and then, then somebody from the middle of this country has an approach they want to put into the airport. I guess everybody, they would have more of a priority, I would assume, to have that approach built, the JFK would. Or yeah, you, know you, you would think so, but I, I didn't really, unfortunately, get involved in those kind of, of decisions. But I think that would probably be a reasonable assumption, certainly. But uh, the the workload that we faced there, they were trying to get a lot, a lot, a lot of RNAV approaches in. It was a congressional mandate um, that we really put in an RNAV approach to any any runway that had the uh, the the obstacle evaluation and survey and such to support it. And so JFK would count as one, you know, and, uh, and Carl Valeri international would count as uh, one, <laughs> just like, so, but you brought up an interesting, an interesting thought with, uh, you said private airport. Now, um, of course there's public use private airports and then right. private use private airports. Right. Uh, I did several procedures for actual private private airports, um, you know, owned by a company or something like that. And that's actually reimburse, they reimburse the government for that. It's not cheap either, <laughs> uh, for all the, uh, development work and, and the flight inspection and all that and ongoing maintenance. So they're actually, if you did have Carl Valeri International and you want an approach out there, you could, you could pay to have one developed if you were, if you weren't a public airport. You know, I'm wondering if, uh, you did the the actual development yourself, uh, if you could go to the FAA. I, I do know that, like, there's been airlines that have developed approaches. Uh, one comes to mind, like, in Kennedy, where I operate out of the 1-3 left, you know, the RMP there, was developed by an airline. And right. they wanted to start using that. And, of course, the government said, well, if you're going to use that, you have to make it available to everybody else. But they actually did all the engineering and paid for it themselves and uh, and went forward. So I wonder if it would have been cheaper to do it with the FAA or do it themselves. I, I'm, I'd be curious to see what the price tag would be. Uh, I'd be wonder how that would go. You know, I did, I, although I developed the procedures and I generally had to keep track of my time, which was, which was interesting for, for those ones so they could, I guess, charge appropriately. I never actually got to see the final bill, but I, I think it was in the multiple tens of thousands of dollars at least. So, uh, but that, that's including the flight inspection time and, you know, aircraft time for the you know the king airs or learjets or challengers and that kind of thing that would fly yeah, i'd like to hear about that later that, that sounds interesting the flight inspection stuff i know you're not involved but that, that'd be interesting to hear about yeah but sure len you had some yeah i was kind of you know touching upon carl's question when we were uh you know when you when you mentioned putting together an instrument approach for a private facility whether it's a corporation or a privately owned airport uh, you know for an individual were those, you know, were those GPS-based approaches, or were they actual navade types of approaches? Uh, could be either. Mostly GPS, of course, because um, you know that that's everywhere, and there's no ground equipment that's required. But uh, I did a few NDB approaches in Alaska for different, uh, you know, for different companies operating up there, oil companies and such, and they would just plant an NDB on the field and uh, and ask us to design an approach for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and that kind of leads me to my next question because I'm sure that, you know, GPS, from a pilot's perspective, we all know how much that's changed, improved, 
are are navigating in the sky and made things more precise and more simple. And I'm curious with these precision uh, RNAV precision GPS facilities and approaches out there. Did that was that does that make your job easier? Because now you don't have to deal with building you know a navigational aid or installing any type of uh, a beacon or antenna system on an airport. Did that did that improve or make your process any simpler? Well, we didn't have anything to really do with the infrastructure. I mean, either it was there or it wasn't or it was coming. But, you know, there aren't many VORs being installed these days. So so that was not a not not a real concern. What GPS certainly did as a, a blessing and a curse, I guess, in, in some ways. But uh, it it certainly made more approaches possible. Um, and, you know, the the routing of the more flexible, some of the, uh, you know, some of my, you know, pulling my hair out was, was about how to use a VOR that's not on the field to get someone into this airport in the mountains that, you know, nothing quite lines up right and there's no real good way to do it. Whereas with GPS, it was, it was a reasonably, reasonably simple, uh, simple effort. But the curse part comes, of course, well, now GPS can go in any, any airport. So there's a lot more work to do, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, so so kind of kind kind of both uh, both both ends there. So you know, my my thoughts on GPS are at some point these satellite based and ground based augmentation systems could essentially. I mean, we've already seen them, you know, pretty much phase out NDB and nearly entirely. Uh, VORs are slowly no longer being maintained, and you know, I, one could one could see the GPS and satellite infrastructure completely replacing all the old, uh, you know, all the old facilities and nav aids that actually required physical, you know, human interaction for maintenance and upkeep. What are your, you know, as as a previous uh, employee of the Air and Nav Products Division and you know a CFI, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know if it comes so much as a previous employee, but, you know, cer- certainly as an active pilot and, and a flight instructor, I, you know, GPS is obviously, you know, the way of the future. It's been that way for 20 years. But um, I, I think you're right. We're, we're, it's it's inevitable that the ground-based infrastructure components will go away sooner or later, or at least in a much, much reduced capacity. Certainly we'll have ILSs for, for a long time, I think, but because um, they're already there for one. But but VORs, there's are they're already decommissioning them as, as you uh, mentioned the concept of the uh, minimum operational network. I, re- I forget what the number is that they plan to reduce the number of VORs to over the next you know several years or so. But but yeah, we've we've of course seen uh, VORs that have broken down and just not been fixed. Uh, that, that was routine with NDBs. Uh, so it's an it's inevitable one way or the other, but uh, of course you have the argument that well, what happens when the GPS constellation goes down and you know or or is jammed or or any of those concerns? And you know anybody who's been flying long enough has probably experienced some kind of a GPS outage somewhere, and uh, it happens. So so there's got always have to be some kind of backup to that. But uh, what form that'll take, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, you know, like we were talking about with with private facilities, whether it's a a private airport or a private public use airport, you know, the GPS essentially is given the common man the ability to have an instrument approach in his backyard virtually. Uh, it's it's pretty it's a pretty neat concept. Uh, I know that Rick did have a question as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was just, you know, as we were talking about the basics of what you did in that, in that position, I started sort of thinking about the process and, and, uh, kind of wondered because I work in a kind of creative environment where multiple people have input on things and we, you know, we bounce stuff around and although sometimes it's not that way, sometimes it's isolated. So I had had a thought to you know, sort of wonder how it worked where you were, you know, a request comes in, does it get assigned? Are there multiple people who do this? And when you get an assignment, it's yours, or are you working on a team? You know, I, I, cause I can, I imagine the moment when you say, huh, I guess I'm done with this. You know, what happens? Does, does it get reviewed internally there and then, and then move on? That's a kind of a rambling question, but how does that process work? <laughs> Well, there were a lot of questions. Um, as far as uh, being assigned to one person or a team, it, it, the answer is yes. It, it can be either. Um, it, th- in that regard, it would generally depend on the uh, the size of the airport and the size of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, if you got you know, Denver International redoing all departure and arrival procedures, mm-hmm. well, that's really more than one person could <laughs> could reasonably complete in a, you know in in a month or two. Right. So, so to be split up. So in that, in that regard, yeah, there's, there's a lot of inner coordination between the specialists there. Hey, I, I, I can need to move this fix over here. You know, can you still use it? Uh, you know, just right. where are your routes going versus mine? You know, let's, let's try to make, make it make some sense. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it could be the whole airport could be one specialist. One of my, uh, final projects before I left there was, uh, the new airport at St. George, uh, Utah. Uh, it's SGU, it's state SGU. It had to go to an alternate identifier for a while while the other one was kind of still open, but it's back to be an SGU and they, they opened up a new airport there Southeast of St. George. And it was a sign. Hey Russ here, you want to do this? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you know, there's, there's just something to, to see in a project, from start to finish and having it be completely your own. That was, that was right. really nice. You, and you, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, I was going to say, and, and a project like that, I mean, you know, it's all, all approach procedures. Uh, there's a, why don't you talk about that one? Cause I think I read okay. your, your summary of it and I thought that was fascinating. Just, it's a great example of what goes into the, the kind of thinking you have to do in all, all directions. Okay, sure, uh, and and I guess I'll come back to Rick, the rest of Rick's question. I'll well, no, that, that's me. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I'm <laughs> yeah, okay. sort of waving off my old question now. Going, you know, unless oh, okay. unless you want to finish it. I mean, I, I thought. No, it, but go ahead. No, no it's, I'll, I'll have a, I'll finish up your question real quick. And it, okay, yeah, there there is uh, several series of reviews and such. Uh-huh. Um, afterwards, uh, we would generally have a more, you know, if if you weren't a fully qualified. Uh, Terp specialist, you, there'd be a more senior one who kind of look over your work, and then it would go over to QA. And like I said, it, would, it might come back and forth a few times, you right. know, with suggestions and that kind of stuff. So pretty collaborative. Uh, cool. But but as but as far as um, as St. George, Utah, yeah that that was that was fascinating. If anybody's been there or they know the terrain about it, the, the airport's at I forget exactly twenty eight hundred feet or something, but the mountains around it go up to ten twelve thousand. So it's it's in this little bowl. And there, there were very, very limited ways to get airplanes in there. Um, it has a, an LDA with a glide slope to runway 19. LDA with glide slope being essentially analogous to an ILS, of course, but, uh, but it's offset from the runway about seven degrees. And that 
that was built in originally to the sighting of the antenna because they had to point that that localizer signal essentially up a valley. <laughs> so because if they pointed it directly away from the airport like normal, you know, mm. in line with the runway, it, it would go up the side of a hill. So mm. so that seven degree offset, which doesn't seem like much, and, and made the approach possible. It wouldn't have been possible otherwise. So so an approach mm. like that, it as it as the further you get from the runway, the higher the terrain gets. It every step along the way is is evaluating the the obstacles and finding that there's, you know, one little ridge that sticks out, you know, from the side, which just gets in the edge of that area you're supposed <laughs> to be evaluating. And, and that drives up the minimum altitude and affects, well, where do I put my step down fix? Cause I have to get past it. And yeah, it, it's, it's a continual back and forth that, that one final segment that took me a while, <laughs> a while to get just, just back and forth on, on where do I put the final approach fix, um, step down mm. fixes, um, what else do, how can I get, how can I get them down as low as possible? I mean, that's really the goal. Of course you want, you want low minimums, low MDAs, low DAs, you know, it's so a lot of the effort would be in how can I get that extra 20 feet off for, well, granted mm. it's in St. George, Utah. Okay. But <laughs> you know, so the, the, <laughs> they're, they're, they're one day of IMC a year or whatever, but, uh, you know, Still, um, so so work on on that that the LDA uh, glide slope was 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 pretty complicated. Uh, there's a VOR approach that comes in from the south, and that kind of mm. came over some hills. Uh, there's um, I'm trying to think. There's a, a GPS that essentially overlays the the LDA, mm -hmm. and then there's a uh, a GPS also comes from the south, the runway right. one that has an LPV with it. So so a lot of factors there. And I had talked earlier about the departure procedures. That was a whole complete other nightmare there. Um, if, if anybody looks at the, uh, the departure procedures for, uh, for SGU, look at the obstacle departure. It's, it, it'd be a great wow. train. It'd be a great training, uh, departure procedure, but Just called it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you go out on a, on a heading to, you know, runway heading to an altitude, you turn, come back around to the VOR that's on the field, you climb in a holding pattern, and then you go out on a radial to intersect the airway, right? So, <laughs> so now, now that seems silly, but if that's, if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to yeah. do, I guess. I think I might rather wait for a, you know, a, a better day, but, uh, you know, I, I, uh, that's pretty much like every day in Mexico though. That's the yeah. way it is in Mexico. Carl and I have done it day in and day out. And, and you know, as silly as it looks on the map, it's a lot of fun to do it. Uh, you know, cause there's just a lot of coordination and you know, you're in there and you're like, okay, when do I turn? You know, it's, I don't know. Those, those challenging ones were always the most fun for me. What about you, Carl? Oh yeah, they're wonderful. I still get to do them, and it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. Just it's neat, also being in like a non-radar environment, and have to sit there and say, "Okay, it's your turn to go in." You know, American, <laughs> you go first, or we're next, and and it, it's a challenge, like running around all these different mountains and stuff. So you, you really got to bring your A game when you're doing it, and it, it's cool. It makes it it makes it fun actually, and, and a challenge. And you get to see some interesting terrain too during the day. That's for sure. Yeah. And you know why you need to follow those procedures at night. No doubt, one of the one of the main things that we would try to do and it was it's it's in the 8260.3 uh the bible there that um you're supposed especially on departure procedure you're supposed to make it with the intent that the lowest equipped lowest performing airplane can still fly it 
So in the uh, St. George example, well, you know, it would have been a lot easier if I had been able to use a DME fix or something like that. Uh, but since I could do it without using a DME fix, that was that was the direction that 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 I went. So that you know that that pile in the the one seventy two with one nav radio can can still fly that departure procedure. Yeah, you mentioned the eighty two sixty three. I know we talked about it before, but just to to clarify for the listeners, uh, that's basically developed by the the flight procedures and standards branch of the FAA, and, and that's when we say TERPS, uh, that's what we're talking about. That's the uh, Terminal Instrument Procedures Handbook, and we keep talking about that. So I just want to kind of clarify: if anybody wants to see it, just go to the FAA website and just look up eighty two sixty dot three or TERPS, and they'll find it there. So it's uh, you know it's pretty interesting how the all the criteria there i kind of led you down that path but there is a lot of of information and good stuff too real interesting stuff but uh i got one more question for you actually sure. i have five thousand more questions for you this okay. is really yeah, but i told him you had to stuff. keep it to three but, so but, but, but <laughs> i'm only allowed three because Len, lens only let me to have three. First, first one's pretty easy have you ever worked on any of those the rnp procedures the rnap procedures where it has a an rf leg in other words a and for an RF leg means a, a radius to a fix. It's a curving procedure on the final approach. It's pretty fascinating. Have you ever worked on one of those? Yeah, I have. I've done. I did, I did several while I was there. Um, in fact, if <laughs> if you guys are pulling up approaches, uh, look up uh, yeah. Wenatchee, Washington, EAT, uh, the RNP to runway twelve, I believe. Yeah, twelve, and uh, that's it. It's uh, you start basically over the airfield at uh, you know multiple thousand feet up. I can't remember exactly. I don't have it in front of me, but uh, and you circle around a, a nearby mountain and and come down a river valley and then turn on the final and then you roll out you know, a few mile final, maybe five mile final. But yeah, th- those are fascinating approaches, and uh, I, w- I was also very fortunate on that one. I got to to fly that one in the FAA's seven thirty seven simulator one day. Uh, after I had developed it, so that was that was kind of a neat neat trick. It, you know, the, these are fascinating doing these approaches because I, you know, we we do them quite often actually. And they what what always worries me is like how I, I think about this. How did did they account for the wind? And you know, I'm, am I going to be blown off course here too far? And uh, you know, I know that's all in the turfs, but th- those are the things that go on in your mind. The other strange thing here is the go-around. Say you need to do a go-around during that approach, and it's a curving approach. You, you, you need to usually have a certain speed so that you can actually you know, make it all the way around that curve without going outside the protected area. But that, that actually is something that takes some real thought while you're doing this procedure because you can't just go around and you have to continue on that approach and keep that curve going, and you have to continue on with your speed because many times when you go around, you start accelerating. And that's pretty fascinating too. I, 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 I'm sure there's a lot of geometry behind all that. And uh, oh, yeah, there's there's tons. And, and you're right. That that's that's a very good uh, concern on the go around. Um, as far as the the uh, winds, yeah, winds are you know, average wind speeds are calculated in there, and there is a uh, there's a standard wind speed, or we or we can request wind surveys at various altitudes. Uh, the increase in indicated uh, in true airspeed versus indicated at altitude is is considered there for turn radius. Uh, you'll see on a lot of those procedures, you'll see maximum speeds uh, for the various segments, and that's not usually an ATC restriction. That's a you need to be flying below 
you know, 200 knots or something in order to make this turn radius. Uh, and you'll see that the turn radiuses generally get tighter as you get lower again because of the, uh, uh, the reduced true airspeeds. So, and that's yeah, kind of scary. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a lot that goes into there, and especially in, in places like Wenatchee or, or, or other mountainous areas that in order to make those work. We got to put a picture of this on the website. That's a that's a really fascinating approach. But the um, the other question I had on on the approach is a concerning category three B or category three type approaches. Sure, I'm I'm sure you've been involved with those. And you know we we talk about ILSs. I really don't think they're going away anytime soon, mainly because of this. But uh, it's really interesting that every I think a lot of people think that pilots usually let the airplane land. In most conditions, they can't land on that runway if there's too high of a wind, et cetera, it, it, you can't even do a Category 3 approach because the airplane has to do an auto land. When you're trying to figure something like that out, the Category 3B, you're just looking at protected space, et cetera. Do you ever take into consideration the, the airplane side? I know there's a lot of auto land aircraft out there that, that they can't land with a certain crosswind, et cetera. Is that ever taken into consideration, the actual airplane, or you just look at just the the segments where you're trying to protect it. Yeah, not not at the design level. No, that that's the that's was not a consideration. Right. You know, once yeah, I mean that, that's an operational uh, consideration for for you guys. Yeah, it, and it's interesting too because it, there's there's times when those go down. We did, uh, and what's funny is we always say we can land the airplane better than than it can land itself, and that was showed true. But that two days ago, it did an auto land uh, in coming into Tampa, and it just as a matter of fact, it bounced the landing on an auto land because we were so light that the system really didn't compensate well enough for for how light we are and actually actually bounced that. But uh, that was pretty fascinating. You know, the, the other thing, too, and I, I'm only allowed the three questions, so I, I'll, I'll stick to this. Uh, I, had a, I had a listener mail, and, and I promised I'd ask this one. He, he was actually asking about a specific uh, departure procedure, and he was wondering. It was actually the Hugo departure out of Charlotte. Uh, but, but in general, he, he wanted to know why on that chart it showed uh, 11,000 as an MEA when the, the, the obstacle clearance was like 2,900 and all the other in-route charts, I think the MEAs were much lower. Um, I know that there's a lot that goes into uh, figuring out the, the on the departures and the arrivals, uh, both uh, the uh, distance and also obstacles, but somebody else is a key player in there to decide those altitudes. How do you how do you get those other key players, like other airspaces in the in other airports in the area? How do they come to the table on an approach you're doing for Charlotte? You know, how how does that come into play? Yeah, on a, on a, on an actual instrument approach, I mean, you know, the minimum altitudes are, are are minimum altitudes. You know, either for you know, you most often for terrain or you know that that kind of consideration. But on on SIDS and, and stars, and I can't speak you know specifically of the one at Charlotte, but but on SIDS and stars and other uh, other procedures where you're getting you know some distance out and um, and the the obstacles are, are not really a factor you know if you take off out of out of Dayton and you're at ten thousand feet the you know not many obstacles are a factor right um, in in those cases some of those minimum altitudes are specified by air traffic control you know I think it was eleven thousand in your example where the the uh, the airway that was right along the same course was thirty one hundred something like that so. So often they are just specified by air traffic control for their uh, traffic flow, uh, coordination with other 
other airports, other air traffic control facilities, um, and it, it, th- those kind of considerations. And that's where the the turf specialists would work closely with air traffic control. Say, okay, you know, we got we have this design. You know, here, take a look and tell us what you think. And they'll say, oh, well, we need these guys to be at eleven thousand. And if it, if it works, and you know, the airplanes can get up there, it's and they're going to be cruising up that high anyway. It, it really doesn't matter. I mean, if you're talking about a, a departure for, you know, a jet only departure, having the minimum out of 11,000 isn't really going to make much of a difference. So, uh, so they, so they would publish them like that. You know, and this is an important point is, uh, you know, I get this question often. It's like, well, why do I have to comply with that? Especially say on a star, uh, you know, the, why am I needing to comply with those altitudes? They just don't make sense to me. And I think that's the part that they don't see is that that big picture that there's other departures that they're not. You know, they're saying, "Hey, you you follow this this star and you follow this SID, and by having the altitude set, they don't have to worry about talking to you all the time. And you could actually have a collision hazard if you don't follow those altitudes. So I think that's well, really course, important. Yeah, of course, any any altitude is negotiable with ATC. I mean, you know, if you right. if you want to fly that Charlotte departure and you, you want to fly it at eight thousand, of course, you just ask, and you know, right, who knows? right. Yeah. Fascinating stuff, though. That, that's that's awesome. That's my my last question. I, I, I but I do have the other, you know, four thousand or so questions. I'll ask you later offline. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm starting. I'm starting to gather here, Russ, that you probably would have been the person that I would want to come to when I'm irritated about doing the uh, descend via on the Arnav Gibbs into. Washington Dulles with the crossing restriction at or above, at or below the betweens. That I wonder sometimes when I'm looking at <laughs> and I'm flying a procedure, and I know you know you're in the design aspect, and then the guys in flight check go out there. Maybe it's the guys in flight check I should go and smack around a little bit and say, "You flew this. How you know why? Why did you think this is acceptable?" There are some approaches out there, specifically the one, uh, the RNAV descend via uh, arrival into Washington Dulles. That uh, is very difficult. There, are a, what you're looking at is there's a lot of uh, crossing restrictions in a very small distance. So you know you've only got a couple of a couple of miles to hit something at or below, and the next one between, and the next one above. And you know it's very it's very tricky. Why might a procedure be as complicated as that and not a little bit more simplistic? What you know? What are some of the things that go into that? Is it an airspace consideration? It can be, and I imagine that at Dulles, that's probably the case, or, or yeah, in, in that area. Um, it's really uh, for any kind of any kind of questions like that. You can you can email uh, you know off the FAA's website. They have a link that uh, takes you to Aeronav Products, and I mean they they answer questions. So okay. that that might be that might be something you could ask them. Uh, that's a good place to point out. Uh, the uh, it's aeronav.faa.gov, and on the left column there, there's a uh, I forget the exact phrasing. It's instrument flight procedures gateway, something like that. Through that link, you can get to the coordination documents. Anytime a new uh, approach or departure is going to be published for an airport, before it's published, there they put on that website what it's going to be, and and they invite. Uh, user comments, and uh, and I, I saw several examples as a developer that I would change the procedure based on on comments from from pilots. Mm-hmm. So that 
certainly uh, go in there. You can click on your state or, or whatever you're interested in and then take a look at that. Um, that, that, that just helps make the, the procedures better. You know, if, if, if you have it like just your example, you know, that it's really hard to fly, that, that would be a valid comment, you know. Uh, it may may or may not change anything, of course, but uh, yeah. you know, the other considerations, but at least to get them to know. No, that's good to know. I actually had no idea uh, that that even existed, and not that I would go and email and uh, be all angry, but that would be a good way to, you know, to voice your concerns. I, I again, I had no idea that that existed. He's correct. Uh, if you go to aeronav.faa.gov, uh, it is Instrument Flight Procedures Information Gateway. Uh, and what Russ is just uh, talking about, all the information is displayed there. Um, so, be, you know, that that's actually interesting. I may have to, uh, yeah, comments on procedures should be directed to, and there's the email. So that's that's pretty uh, pretty helpful there. They have a good video, too, about how to do it. Yeah. You just watch that video. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of curious. Uh, we talked about, you know, how St. George... Probably it was one of your favorite because you you know it was, it was a new airport and you essentially got to create something from uh, you know from idea to inception to to putting it out there. Uh, what what are maybe you know two or three of your other really favorite approaches? <laughs> well, a few I designed in the Salt Lake City that never actually got published. Unfortunately, those were those were R and P uh, procedures like we talked about before. But uh, there there was some uh, some issues that. Uh, air traffic control and some users had there. Um, you know, there were so many, I think that one at uh, Wenatchee, Washington, uh, the R and Peter only two, that that's gotta be one of my favorites there. Uh, there, there, there are just so many that, I mean, th- those are probably a few of my favorites. I think another one might've been the, uh, the ILS into Seattle only because it was, it was really interesting. They added a new runway there and, um, we got to uh, we split that project up, and each of us took a runway and uh, and did uh, did the procedures there. But that one had cat one, two, and three minimums. So uh, so you know a lot of work uh, evaluating the obstacle uh, environment around there. But uh, yeah, I I I enjoyed d- d- designing these procedures, and there there were so many that were that were unique. There were there were quite a few that were pretty straightforward too, with no no doubt. But uh, but. I, I kind of enjoy getting the little bit trickier ones, and you know, and seeing how I could make it work out, like a kind of like just a big puzzle. Yeah, you know, that kind of leads to uh, to Rick's question, which sort of, uh, you know, we have a very yeah. interesting approach up in the Northeast that uh, begs the creativity of some of the naming conventions. Go ahead, Rick. <laughs> yeah, no, I just thought I've got you, got you on the phone, and we, jo- you know, we. I remember I was a student, and somebody showed me the uh, it's a GPS approach, RNAV GPS approach to runway sixteen at Pease. And um, it's just got a, it's got a funny, you know, the, the fixes have funny little names. Essentially, in reverse order, spell out, you know, Itawa Putitat. Um, I thought Itawa Putitat. And um, so somebody named it. How do, how, do you, how do you get to, how are those named? You know, that's the most asked question I think I've, I got. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm surprised it took you guys, what, 45 minutes or so to get to it. Well, so. you know, we wanted to. <laughs> really slow. Yeah, really slow. <laughs> Well, no, the, the fixed names, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. And, and a lot of people see, you know, approaches like that. There's, I, I was on an airliner in, uh, into, uh, into Denver a few times last week and, uh, 
And some of the fixes on the the approaches and the departures, well, the uh, the Sids and Stars into there, they're they all have their own names names for you know Broncos and you know Denver and you know names of players and they had some kind of like a the Simpsons themed one where it had Smithers <laughs> and uh, Maggie fixes and you know all this kind of stuff. So, right. but uh, for the really neat ones like those, it, what generally happens is there's a limited number of fixed names. So special interests within the FA, like air, the air traffic control centers, have reserved a bunch that they will use. You know, as as new uh, new stars and such are developed for the the more mundane fixes, the you know the the normal approaches and such. Um, we were able to just tell the computer, "I need five fixed names," and it would spit out five fixed names. Uh, oh. And if we didn't like those, we could ask for five more, you know, or however many we need. But even then, you have to comb through them a little bit because some of these are really hard to pronounce, as you guys right. know. <laughs> so uh, so hey, I, what I would generally try to do is, is out of that list of five or ten or whatever, pick the most easily pronounceable ones and make those the ones that people are actually going to have to say sometime, like, you know, vectors to final, the final approach fix or, or something like that. But right. you save the, the less pronounceable ones for step-down fixes and, you know. Those kind of things. So, right. but, but yeah, you know, you can, you can root through and, but as time goes on, you know, the, you know, I, I know Russell fix is already taken. It's out near Richmond, Virginia, you know, so I couldn't use that one somewhere. Um, yeah. So more and more fixed names get taken, of course, and you, you end up with these weird oddball ones we see nowadays. Right. The, the only rule is they have to be somewhat pronounceable, but even that's kind of <laughs> a bit of a misnomer and sometimes. Right. That's cool. I've run into a few that still scratch my head going, how am I supposed to pronounce that? There's like no vowels in it. So I'm like, what, what is this supposed to be? Um, but I like that one that that, uh, that Rick was talking about. It is, uh, I just pulled it up. The RNAV GPS runway 16 into Portsmouth Pease International Airport, uh, Kilo Papa Sierra Mike. The, uh, the approach waypoints are, the initial approach fix is I taught... Itawa, Putty, Tat, and the missed approaches I did. Uh, I deed. So, uh, you know, fun play on, on mm-hmm. some of those. And there's there's other ones. I like the ones in Kansas City. There's like barbecue ribs. Uh, <laughs> yep. You know, I've seen yep. all kinds of different ones. I actually saw uh, there's a Felty waypoint. You remember that one, Rick? Remember what oh, yeah. Felty was? <laughs> you should, you, I think you took a picture of, yeah. of your... Uh, Com- you know, your computer showing, showing it. Yeah, it was down in uh, DCA, Reagan. Uh, was that's that, the waypoint was felty. So. Nice to know that's out there. Yeah, you've got one named after you. <laughs> awesome. You didn't even know it. Oh. Screw the, screw the Broncos and the Denver yeah, arrivals. Yeah. You got felty in DC. I think the they should auction off. Yeah, they, they should auction <laughs> off the personal names. You know, I wonder how Cleveland's going to go about changing LeBron. I know they changed the name to LeBurne. That's how they pronounce it now. But uh, I wonder if they could actually get that pulled off the chart there for the arrival. <laughs> yeah, they'll probably change it to something. Wow. Anything whatsoever. Jeez, uh, what else do we have here? So um, I think I had another question, but I forgot. Carl, did you have one? Uh, no, actually, it was the, the Charlotte example. But, uh, you know, going back to your being a CFI, and mm-hmm. then having all this experience with, with air traffic control, do you ever find yourself like getting too far into the weeds or going too far into the pool where you're at the bottom of the pool in the drain when you're discussing air, you know, air traffic control and, and discussing you know, approach procedures and departure procedures? You have to say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, I've got to pull back here a little bit. 
Yeah, I've I've caught myself a few times with students, you know, <laughs> especially you know when we're covering some information on in the ground, and I well, you see if, if it's designed like this because the the designer probably thought that you know blah blah blah, you know, it's like oh okay, the, the pilot doesn't need to know that, but no, no. But, <laughs> but you know then, but then you know sometimes we'll ask you know it depends on the student, you know, they might be interested in that kind of thing, so maybe I'll just uh, you know blabber on for a couple minutes on that and and uh, and. It, it, I, I do think having some kind of appreciation of what goes into the into the procedure design, you know, helps you know, helps you understand why you know why it comes this weird way or why it's got this oddball altitude or you know, you know why it isn't maybe the easiest one to fly, but maybe it's the only way to get in there. You so know? you you do this the CFI thing part time. It sounds like you're pretty active. Yeah, I am. Uh, it is part time, nights, weekends, uh, and uh, you know as much as I can. But uh, it's definitely part time. So, how do you balance that? I mean, how do you balance doing that and then going from one job to the next? I mean, there's some people out there. I'm I'm sure thinking, hey, I want to be a flight instructor part time, and um, that must be fairly difficult. Can you handle that student by yourself, or do you get help from other instructors? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, yes. Yeah, we we do both. We have a we have you know, a pretty active school, and uh, I, I think there's about eight instructors. But you know, so occasionally we'll have, we'll fill in for each other. But I, I will say, working a, you know, a normal job for eight hours, and then going and doing maybe two flights after that. You know, so you know, flight instructing until eight or nine at night that, that can get pretty tiring. But uh, but it, it's it's really so much fun. I, I get a kick out of it, and. You know, have a very supportive wife who uh, you know doesn't mind me being gone a couple of days a week. You know, so uh, you know it's it's worked out pretty well. Well, that's cool because that that's always tough. I mean, for people that want to do this part time and then they have a a full time job. Now, and you said you were the Department of Defense. Now, do you do something that's, similar to what you were doing? No, not at all. It, it's I'm a safety manager. It's 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 kind of unrelated, but uh, well. It's, Procedures well, are yeah, I guess to do yeah, that's, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, but. that's pretty fascinating. You know, I did want to get back to that the, the RF thing, the, the radius to fix oh, yeah. on the RNAV approaches, and that one that you were designing. I, I saw that one there. You had discussed airspeeds, and that there's uh, they will specify them on there, and that that's not an air traffic control thing. I wanted to stress that again is the fact that if you do have a radius to a fix, that that you have to hold that speed because of drift, etc. Uh, based on the winds, do you know if I'm assuming within there there's got to be a maximum wind speed that would be part of that procedure if you're doing a curving approach like the one that you showed us in the mountains? Is mm-hmm. there a, a maximum wind speed that would be for that approach? I'm trying to find it on there and I I don't see it there. Uh, no, it's not it's not something that's published. There there when they will design those, they will use. <sighs> A, a you know, wind survey data. Uh, there are actual companies that will survey wind data at altitudes around an airport, um, and they will use the maximum of those speeds. Um, so you know the maximum expected wind at ten thousand feet over Wenatchee is fifty knots or whatever. Um, so they'll, they'll use those uh, in the calculation of the turn radius. Okay. All right. Because that, cause that, I always wondered about that because you're sitting there trying to, to get around, you know, especially in those mountain passes, and you're sitting there saying, gosh, you know, how, how, do, how are we going to figure this out? Uh, the other thing, too, that, that I thought was fascinating, you talked a little bit about 
uh, departure procedures. You talked about Mexico. Uh, I mean, if you just go out west to uh, oh, I'm trying to come up with the example, but there's a airport out out west where you know you have a departure procedure comes back to the airport. If say you you lose an engine or whatever, so you're in a twin engine, you need to come. Uh, you have to turn back towards a VOR, and there's there's a, a lot of different things involved in doing this departure procedure. Um, and people that have FMS, I mean, a lot of times the the flight management system will do it for you. Uh, you really have to kind of be on your toes uh, and go left or right. The, um, the the one thing that that I think is important is if you, I think you touched on this before, if you can't do or you can't comply with something, say you're having a performance issue, et cetera, you, you just you just have to tell air traffic control that hey, listen, I'm I'm unable to do this because of this procedure, et cetera. And uh, that, that's something that, that I think has to be you know, repeated. If you can't comply with any of those altitudes, maybe even going back to that Charlotte example we talked about, you just tell them you, you cannot comply with that. Um, so that, that's one point I kind of wanted to make. The other thing, too, that I thought was interesting is during these approach procedures, um, the, the go-arounds on these, say you're, gonna, you're planning an approach to one runway and an approach to another runway, uh, on a go-around, I assume that if they have multiple approaches going in there, that that's also designed into the approach, or is that air traffic control that says, okay, we can only allow this to happen at the same time, et cetera. But um, you can have simultaneous approaches to crossing runways. And does that come into play while you're actually designing that? Approach yeah, procedure. there there are specific rules for converging ILS type approaches and as, you know, what the missed approach procedures are, and they have to diverge by so many number of degrees depending on how you know the runway configuration. Uh, so yeah, that that is that is something that is considered in the design. Yeah, and, and you know what's uh, another thing that's fascinating about that is that there are some airports where the runways don't actually touch, and they're not considered crossing runways. But if you're on a go around, you could easily possibly bump into somebody and uh, that's you know something to take into to account and just i guess what is it vegas is like that that's one of the runways and they're they're actually looking at redesigning that but it's uh these are these are like 90 degrees these approaches doing simultaneous approaches uh so that that's something that i i thought would be interesting to see what type of input they would have during that whole process as to how you how you would go about spacing the aircraft and saying, "Hey, air traffic control, this is what you need to do." Sure. Well, there are there are approaches that just happen to converge with other approaches at the airport, and there are ones that are actually labeled converging ILS right. type approaches, right? So, uh, but air traffic control is is obviously the final authority on when to how many planes can be flying the approaches at a time and the spacing and that kind of thing. That even if it's not necessarily considered during des- the design, right. Now, one other thing about the, uh, as far as the, you know, uh, I'm trying to look for the word, but the barrow nav, if uh, for uncompensated barrow nav, you see that on a lot of approaches. Yes. Um, Just to explain a little bit to the folks listening, and and this is on the instrument uh, approach charts, almost on most of these you'll see for uncompensated uh, barrow nav, you, uh, you have to operate within these certain temperature limits. Could you explain that a little? Yeah, I can try. The uh, where you'll see those is usually on uh, on, on our GPS uh, approaches. Um, specifically, they have to do with the LNAV VNAV line of minimums uh, because 
yeah, you can fly an LNAV VNAV with your uh, Garmin 430W or you know, any other WAS receiver. You'd probably just fly the LPV. But uh, there are aircraft that are allowed, and I, I think, Carl, it's mostly the uh, airliner type aircraft that can calculate a, ver- a VNAV course with using the barometric altimeter. And the, the notes are on there because the error in altitude varies depending on temperature, right? For when it, whether right. it's really, really cold or really, really hot. And so if, if the air is such that you're going to be lower than you think, there's, there's a certain amount of, of buffer built in there. But once, once you're, once you exceed that buffer, you can't fly the approach anymore. So I, you know, barrel, you know, uncompensated barrel VNAV NA below, you know, zero degrees or, or whatever it says. And, and that's dependent on, on, uh, on some other factors too. But, uh, but yeah, that, that generally does not apply to most general aviation aircraft or, or pilots. Uh, right. Unfortunately, it, it really does clutter up the, the notes box there, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. And because yeah. there are times also when you'll see that it says barrel VNAV is not authorized, period. Below right. a certain temperature, and and it's you know I, it'd be interesting to find out what what the criteria is to have that on there and to not have that on there, um, but I, I guess it's maybe authorized users only that have the com, uh, compensated you know barrow VNAV that on their aircraft that they can do that. As a matter of fact, a lot of airlines don't have that. A lot of corporate planes seem to have it more so. Maybe the more the modern airlines have it, but but some of the older ones don't. But fascinating stuff, though. This is great. Like I said, we could go on. There's, I've got now, you know, four thousand nine hundred fifty left. <laughs> he's going to send you a very long. He's going to stay up for the next week and write an email to you, Russ. So watch out; it may crash your computer when it tries to download three gigabytes okay. of questions. I'll, I'll make sure to clear out my inbox. So yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I I wanted to kind of go back real quickly. I was uh, too busy picking my nose to hit the unmute button. But when Carl was talking about just advising air traffic control when you're unable to comply with this with a procedure, just a very quick uh, story. We were in Denver, and one of our departures, you know, requires us to check the climb gradients, and and we did everything that we were supposed to do with the weights and the temperatures. Yes, great, everything's good. We can do it. We take off. And I'll be damned, the aircraft was not performing the way it was anticipated, and we weren't going to make some of these restrictions. And I, I let departure know airborne. I was like, ah, we are, this is not going to work. It, you could, you know, you could hear a little bit of disgust in his voice, but at the same time, you know, he, uh, they worked with us and gave us some hard altitudes instead. But there are, there are, there are times, that was like one example. And in fact, that's the only time I've, done a procedure where the numbers and the math said, yes, everything's going to be good, and you get in the air, and I'll be damned, something isn't working right, and for some reason, it's just not happening. Um, so, it'd be, you know, like Carl said, if it's, if it's not working out, by all means, let air traffic control know, and, and they'll work with you. Um, that story being said, I think the last question I'm kind of curious about, and then we'll probably wrap it up here, Russ, is, uh, you know, you were in Aeronav products, but you did speak of the folks who were in the flight check department. Now, those guys seem like they have a pretty cool occupation. How do I get a job with them? <laughs> well, they do occasionally have uh, job ads. Uh, you could apply for one, but uh, they, 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 do have, they do have a pretty neat job. Um, they are, as I understand it, now, of course, I, I didn't work over there, but I understand they're generally away from their base, you know, their home 
a lot mm-hmm. you know, for, for a week at a time, those kind of things. And they, they'll, they'll go and they'll, they have schedulers that'll say, okay, you need to go, you know, you're, you're going to be flying all around Texas this week doing all these different approaches and they'll hop around and, and do all those and then return to their home base. And, and, but they, they do fly an awful lot. Um, I'm sure you got to certainly have to be a very proficient, uh, instrument pilot. Mm-hmm. Now the stuff that they actually, are they collecting data? Uh, cause you said, you know, you would, you would build an approach, you would pass it off to flight check and you would ask them, is this feasible? So they've said it's feasible. Now they've sent the King Air or the Learjet out there and they're cruising around burning a hole in the sky trying to, trying to certify these approaches. Are they collecting data and coming back and saying, hey, this needs to be tweaked? Or you know, wh- what really is an out- the outcome of a flight check? Yeah, they're, they're doing several things. Uh, one thing they're doing is verifying the obstacles, uh, that there's not a, a new antenna tower that went up that nobody knows about or something like that on, you know, on final. Um, for ground-based procedures, you know, VORs and ILSs and that kind of thing, they're, they're evaluating the signal integrity throughout the approach to make sure it meets... You know, there are certain alignment criteria. Uh, I had a few where they came back and said, this isn't working because the, the signal's unusable at, at this range. Um, so they've got, they've got a lot of equipment in the back that's reading all that kind of data. And, and so they, they, they can provide that kind of feedback to us. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, I've heard, you know, I've heard them on the radio before, and I've seen, more specifically, the King Air. You know, you hear Flight Check out there. And, uh, sure. And we... Uh, when I was flight instructing in Lynchburg, Virginia, and we had the runway extended, and they had to reposition the localizer antenna and all that good stuff, and uh, you know, we're like, when's when are they going to open this approach? When are they going to open this approach? And those of us who were out instructing that day and saw the flight check and heard them on the radio, are like, yes, the ILS is coming back soon. I know it. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it seems like a pretty cool, like I said, a pretty cool job. Um, but uh, that being said, I think, uh, barring Carl's 4,980 other <laughs> questions, uh, I believe we've, uh, you know, we've exhausted the, the, most, uh, the most curious cat uh, questions that we have for you today. <laughs> I certainly appreciate having you on the show. It's been really, sure. really fascinating. We, you know, our most fascinating interviews are when we get to hear about the nitty-gritty behind the scenes of things that you know, we do and we fly and we operate every day, but somebody somewhere had to put that together, had to put that approach procedure on paper and figure out how it was going to work. So first of all, thank you for being on the show. Second of all, thank you for uh, saving our bacon and uh, designing some things that uh, you know, obviously safe and making sure that pilots out there are uh, not flying into terrain or treetops. So uh, you know, I second that. And um, you know, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for, having, uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think it's been great been a lot of fun the after landing checklist so links and uh, show notes for this episode will be and are currently available at stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash 66 when you get there don't forget to like tweet and share the show you can also leave us a comment on the blog because you know how much we love hearing from you of course, if you've uh, enjoyed this show, once you get over to Stuck My Gavcast, uh, you can visit our sponsors and affiliates on the website. The, that does help support all the costs and putting everything together for you. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or even show ideas, uh, the contact information is stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash contact. Once you get there, you can send us an email, leave us a voicemail. You can write me a letter if you want. Uh, all of the individual contact co-host information is 
listed directly on that page. Uh, before we go, a very special thank you to our sponsor, Aviation Universe, for uh, for uh, sponsoring our podcast today. Uh, from myself, oh, let's, geez, Russ, Russ, Russ just chimed in. He's like, my contact info, I forgot about that. Russ, how can we get in touch with you? It's okay. Yeah, if anyone <laughs> wants to get in touch with me, uh, a couple ways. Uh, email is cfirus, pretty simple, cfirus at gmail.com or uh, facebook.com slash cfirus. So pretty simple. Fantastic. So there you go, folks. Uh, so that's uh, Russ's contact information. Now, from myself, Len Costa, Carl Valeri, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, and Victoria Zyko. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 66 of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Until next time, fly smart and fly safe. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Avcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Avcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast, a Len Costa production.